Welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm the chairman of the Precision Oncology Alliance, the large collaborative research network that is composed right now of over 53 institutions and healthcare systems, all collaborating on big data and precision oncology research. Our collective and ultimate goal is to have cutting edge research that has an impact, a positive impact on the outcomes of patients with cancer. We continue our series on liquid biopsies and their various implications and the practical applicability of liquid biopsies in various malignancies. And today I have the pleasure of hosting Dr. Elizabeth Heath, professor and GU oncologist at Carmanos Cancer Institute to talk about liquid biopsies, but more specifically on the impact or applicability of liquid biopsies in GU cancers. Uh, Elizabeth has been a prior guest on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast, and she is joining me again uh, today. Uh, Before I air the episode I taped with Dr. Heath, I would love for you to subscribe to the show. You can find the show on all podcast outlets. Subscribe, rate, review, and refer friends or colleagues to the Keras Molecular Minute. Without further ado, Dr. Elizabeth Heath on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Elizabeth, welcome back to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. I'm certain a lot of our listeners know who you are, but to refresh their memory and for the new listeners who have not met you before, a little bit about uh, you, your background, where you are, and um, what your research interests are. Thanks so much for having me back, Chadi. It's always a pleasure uh, to hang out with you and to talk about uh, profiling. It's such a hot topic. Um, uh, Thanks again for this opportunity. I'm Elizabeth Heath. I'm a medical oncologist uh, at uh, the Kermanis Cancer Institute in Detroit, Michigan. I've been here 18 years, and I really am honored to be able to take care of patients in our community and uh, kind of follow my passion, which is drug development. Um, and doing lots of clinical trials, but also, uh, you know, just making sure that we continue to narrow that disparity gap that continues to plague all of us in healthcare. Um, it's something we're pretty passionate about around here and just glad to have that on the sort of as an overarching theme of everything that happens, including new stuff like what you guys are doing. That's great. No, thank you. And really, thank you for everything that you're doing. Uh, at Carmanos and beyond. Elizabeth, what what I want to talk about today is um, NGS, but more on blood. Um, A lot, you know, we we hear a lot of the term liquid biopsy. um, And, you know, you're a GU medical oncologist. Number one is, um, how would you simplify liquid biopsies to listeners who are not necessarily in academia? They're probably general oncologists or maybe not even uh, oncologists, maybe trainees or fellows. And, and when did this, like what, when did this happen that there's become an interest in liquid biopsy and liquid profiling? Is there a history behind that? Well, you know, I think this is such a tough topic because it is so exciting. What happens is it's moving so quickly. And then updates that are maybe in breast cancer or lung cancer, maybe are not necessarily the same in prostate or renal. So it's just this information explosion. 
And all of it kind of comes down to this idea that you've heard me talk about before, which is genomic literacy. You know, what does it actually mean? And as we're trying to keep up and, you know, oh gosh, I got to go biopsy something and, oh, look, there's a metastatic site and I got a sample. We just got our sort of a, a good handle on that. And then next thing you know, everybody's like, well, wait a minute, you know, maybe we should check the blood to see if this kind of similar information is there. And then that term just gets batted around like, well, if not tissue, then blood. And it's not a new concept, I think. You know, many of us, uh, especially in prostate cancer, have been aware of circulating tumor cells that have been around for, oh gosh, a long time. And there are so many experts out there that really know uh, circulating tumor cells uh, better than me. But it's also a topic that's, you know, in other cancers like breast, for example. So this whole concept of how do you know what's happening is our desire and it's our infinite desire of understanding how to help our patients. So we're always looking for guideposts. You know, what's the thing that's going to tell me what to do next or what to do first? And we're, we're fascinated, maybe a little bit obsessed to figure out what's the right next step and trying to figure that out using guideposts that come from blood is not a new topic, but the technology I think is new. So that's kind of cool. Look, drawing blood is always going to be easier than sticking a needle and getting a biopsy. Let's face it, right? I mean, if I were a patient, I mean, I'd rather have that anytime versus um, getting an actual needle in, 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 an actual, in an organ. But as much as we say we'd like to have 100% concordance between the, between the results that come from tissue and the results that come from blood, it's probably the true north and it's probably never going to happen. What is the level of concordance that you, as a medical oncologist, treating patients, as a researcher, as an academician, are okay with? Like, is there an actual level where below which, like, no way, this is not something that's going to help me, but I understand I can get 100%. I'm willing to deal with 10% uh, in con- lack of concordance, 20%, 30%. Is there an actual threshold? I think it really depends on what's the gene. So, you know, I think there's numbers like 80%, boy, you try to really try to get that to be uh, as high as possible. Of course, 100% is is what we want. But, you know, if you kind of miss a big one, like "Mm, breast cancer gene, so BRCA1 and 2, where you're like, oh boy, there's lots of stuff that we could do to target that. Then I don't know if 80% is enough. You know, I think you kind of want to be better than that. If it's a gene we don't really understand, let's say a new gene X that you're like, well, that's research-wise potentially interesting, but you're not really sure what to do with it clinically, then maybe you don't fuss so much for the short haul. So I think it really depends on where the genes fall. But I think the tricky part about liquid biopsies is, you know, everybody thinks, oh, well, it's just blood, but there's lots of stuff floating around in our blood. So it's not just, hey, where's that circulating free DNA that just, you know, was dumped out these little small fragments from, you know, cells, but like all cells have that. So then you wonder, well, if you were to do it in a normal person, you know, what would you measure? Well, you got all sorts of other, you know, hematopoietic cells that also might uh, show up in your in your test. So we say, and I think it's interchangeable a lot of times, cell-free versus circulating tumor DNA. But I guess if you're really specific, we're kind of looking at circulating tumor DNA or even RNA or whatever other doodads you want to check. 
Um, but I think that terminology is tough too, because it's not like the stuff sticks around a long time. So part of the struggle is just the half-life of what you're measuring is so fast. Then you wonder how reflective is it really of the current status of your, you know, your disease. So those challenges definitely exist with blood too. In general, in practice, take research aside, let's just practicality in research. When you when you see a patient where you feel you want to order genomic profiling, is your standard now to order both tissue and blood or you order blood when you can't get tissue or you order tissue and forget the blood? Like how, what, how do you decide, you know, I mean, yeah. take me through a, you know, a patient that comes in the office, you want to order genomic profiling. How do you decide what to do? I think most of us in practice would, try to default to tissue. I think that's sort of become the gold standard. Uh, so whenever possible, but Chadi, you and I know there's just certain cancer types that are just really hard to get tissue from, you know, prostate for one likes bone. We struggle, we've had infinite conversations about, oh boy, how do you optimize, you know, the specimen from bone? Um, but it's true for so many others. I mean, lung cancer, you know, how many times are you going to go after that metastasis in the lung and not worry about a pneumothorax um, or even pancreatic cancer, where it's just such little disease, or maybe there are little peritoneal nodules from ovarian cancer. And you're like, oh boy, I can barely see where it is, let alone try to stick a needle in. So I think there is a group of patients where that's a struggle where it's been really, I think, a blessing to have a liquid biopsy, uh, you know, opportunity, because in some sense, having something there that you can look at, at least gives you some assurance. But oftentimes, you're not even sure if it's negative, as in, hey, there's no readout, what that means, you know, it's just not there, or just couldn't detect it. So that whole, you know, detection threshold is also really important. Um, because that really depends on which assay you're using. And we can't keep up, that's for sure. Is it important to get the RNA through the blood? Or, I mean, how important is that, if any? I don't know if I know how to really give you the right answer. I think from an, you know, the idea of more information may potentially be better. I think it's important. Certainly, you know, fusions are really important to uh, detect. And so you can only find that uh, in RNA. So in certain instances like that, I think it's really important. So as a geomedical oncologist, you deal with kidney cancer, um, urothelial, prostate, uh, testes, um, and so on. When you look at the liquid biopsy application across these GU cancers, do you see a variation? Is it I don't know. Do you do that more of that in prostate versus urothelial versus kidney, or um, how how do you see the applicability of liquid biopsies across the various GU tumors? So that might even be more of just a standard. What do you look at it for cancer? You know, I, I think we're so used to being in the metastatic space, especially in medical oncology, that you're like, wow, this person is a stage four, or I want to know they flunk front front line, whether it's renal, bladder, or whatever. But I think as the field evolves, and next thing you know, we're talking about adjuvant therapy, um, and all of those are reading out with immunotherapy for bo both bladder and kidney, then you wonder, well, you know, who are the right folks? Is it everybody? Is it just the really like, uh-oh, it's a T4 and an N1? Or is it something where you can use liquid biopsy to go, hmm, 
I think that there's something detectable there. Um, so this whole concept of, you know, minimal residual disease, I'm not sure if we're there yet in GU, but I think the, the breast cancer folks have um, done a lot of studies to sort of further that field along, um, you know, and, and asking that question like, well, I don't really see anything there. So maybe you don't need adjuvant therapy. So we have to learn how to incorporate that tool in, you know, these kinds of approaches. I don't think we have that answer yet specifically for GU, but that's where you can think about liquid biopsy as having so many other applications um, you can, it, you know, whether it's looking at potential for adjuvant or even retreatment or recurrence, it's just wide open. You mean you, you think the future is to try to study liquid biopsies in earlier stages of the disease? But if you take a typical clinic of yours, do, do you see most of your colleagues utilizing liquid biopsy in prostate versus others? Or really, it doesn't matter. It depends what you're looking at. Well, I can only speak to sort of my practice. I, I do end up getting liquid biopsies um, in prostate because there's a fail rate there um, when you're just like, oh gosh, another bone metastasis biopsy that didn't yield much. I know many colleagues that I talk to who have just sort of given up doing bone biopsies. You know, it's like, this is sort of a no-go. So if it's not a lymph node or a viscera, it's just not worth the patient going through it. Or they do a true bone marrow biopsy, like, you know, the, the Kynar liquid tumor counterparts do very much. Um, I don't tend to use this as much for kidney or bladder because there's just more readily accessible tissue um, that, that I can, uh, you know, biopsy. Yeah, it seems from listening to you, it seems like really the applicability of liquid biopsy is going to be when you cannot get tissue, whether either it's inaccessible or if you think that the tissue is not going to yield the information you want, or intriguingly, in some of the scenarios you mentioned, if you don't have tissue because, you know, it's adjuvant and you want to try to decide, do you give adjuvant or not, or you're looking at uh, MRD, it's, it's interesting. Yeah. Well, the other, you know, just again, following our other colleagues um, in different uh, cancer types, I think as oncologists, we'd love to also not just give more, 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 but what about less? You know, there's always a potential for dose de-escalation. So maybe you're on something for a long time and wait a minute, your marker is suggesting that maybe you can either take a pause or, you know, only reinstate if there is a recurrence in this. Um, so in that sense, when you do have patients that are doing well, you know, we never know when to stop. There's always this fear of, well, you've been on this for two years. Maybe we should take a break. Oh no, if we take a break, something bad might happen. So again, looking for those guideposts, we don't have them, but is this a, an easy way to potentially look? Maybe. Yeah, it's dose de-escalation and, and treatment mm -hmm. de-escalation. It's absolutely important. Mm -hmm. Do you think, do you, do you, I mean, Five years from now, do you think liquid biopsy will be utilized in the in early stage disease? Do you think we're heading that way? I do. And I'm not even sure if it's five years from now. I think there's such excitement. It's more of just figuring out not all, not necessarily just the when, but also the what. You know, what are we looking for? Um, obviously, we can look at whole exome, whole transcriptome, but you know, what's, what's necessary and what's not necessary. I, I think that conversation continues to evolve. Um, and one that we don't really have a great handle on, you know, sometimes all this wonderful information is just 
lots of wonderful information and you're not sure of the true translational uh, potential. Wow, it's uh, really a lot of things happening. And I mean, honestly, the one thing I would say, I wish when I was a fellow, I got trained in genomics a lot because goodness, it's um, it's a whole uh, new world that we need to learn about. And it's it's moving very fast to your point, really fast. It is. I think the, you know, the definitions are sometimes hard to grasp. Um, they also continue to evolve. Um, I think where you know, the data gets published, all of a sudden there's something new already in abstract form. That's hard. Um, I often look, uh, because I'm translational director at the Institute, I have to look at other cancers. And, you know, there is sometimes some overlap in the approach of looking at, let's say, evaluating minimal residual disease, um, you know, in in lung and in breast and in colon. I, I think GU tends to uh, maybe be a little bit on its own path. Um, a lot of that is just the way we define, especially in prostate cancer, the clinical states. It's a little differently uh, uh, sort of, you know, staged out. So it's something that as a community, we have to take advantage of and just learning from our colleagues. Um, and then the hard part too is, you know, we're very lucky to be partners with uh, with Karis. Sometimes if you're in practice and you're not, and you have just a slew of emails and folks contacting you about, you know, use this one and use this one, it's really confusing. And then from just a practical standpoint, how do you implement that? So you have this sort of routine infrastructure in your practice so that one, you can keep up with not just ordering, but recognizing what the information means, and two, keep track of it. And that's just really hard in a busy practice. Yeah. And, you know, the hope is obviously, you know, by the time we air this podcast, uh, we'll have, uh, you know, the liquid profiling uh, product that we have at Keras will be mature that is available to uh, uh, to patients uh, across the country. And And, you know, I mean, I think you know, refining the product is also important based on the evolving world of genomics. Uh, you know, I loved what you, when you said it depends on the gene, right? I mean, you don't want to really miss a BRCA1 or BRCA2 where you really have direct clinical impact, but sometimes you may miss few of the genes that are not clinically relevant and that's okay. That will improve with time. That's right. And, and I think the other part is, you know, we talk a lot about somatic, but Obviously, for germline mutations, where there's just a whole host of other implications, you know, that's hard, too. So just depending on the, you know, so I guess the the variant allelic frequency, you say, gosh, wow, that gene has a potential to be germline. And then you're sort of responsible for that. How do you figure out that algorithm uh, and make sure that the patient is aware? Because at the root of this, you're trying to help the patient um, figure out, you know, with as a team, you know, what's the best next course of action. And if it's germline, it's, you know, that's data that impacts uh, his or her family. So I think we, we really are still, uh, I'm not saying struggling, but many folks, including myself, we're always trying to optimize that process. You know, did I get that right? Did the counselors get involved? You know, did I document that appropriately? Those are all the real world pressures, I think, that we all feel. Um, and it's hard because there's certainly not a manual that, uh, you know, has been written about how to make that happen. And each practice, especially in prostate cancer, where our urology colleagues are also testing, it's really hard. Um, 
So I think that's something that we probably could do better in the, in the upcoming years. Well, you've been always generous with your time and, and jumping on the podcast. I, I really appreciate uh, you giving us a lot of uh, um, wise thoughts and practical thoughts. I think the practicality of things are important. Any last thoughts before I let you go? Not at all, Chadi. I'm, I'm just thrilled that uh, technology continues to evolve. I think if we can offer a non-invasive option for patients to, so that, you know, there are guideposts there that we need as clinicians and as patients, that's a win. Dr. Heath, Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate. And uh, uh, I definitely will be seeing you in person very soon. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chadi. Okay, folks, thank you so much for joining. I really appreciate you tuning in. I appreciate you supporting the podcast. Please let me know how I'm doing, how the podcast is doing. You can direct message me on Twitter at Chadi Nabhan or send me an email to cnabhan at karisls.com. I hope you're enjoying this, this, this series of the liquid biopsies uh, across various tumor types. And until next time, take care and stay positive.